0: Welcome to New Books in Buddhist Studies. I'm Connie Casser, your host for today's episode, and today we're going to be talking with Wendy Hassenkamp and Jana White. They're the co-editors of The Monastery and the Microscope, Conversations with the Dalai Lama on Mind, Mindfulness, and the Nature of Reality. This book was published by Yale University Press and was recently named by Tricycle Magazine as one of the top Buddhist books of 2017. Wendy and Jana, welcome to the show. Hi, hey. Connie. Hi. Um, so, I'd like to start off as we normally do in our new books podcast by asking you to talk a bit about yourselves. Uh, if you could just tell us where you're from, your educational background, and how you wound up in fields related to Buddhist studies. So, um Wendy, let's start with you.
1: Sure, yeah. Um, I am from New Jersey originally, and I did my undergraduate at Wake Forest in North Carolina. And then I went on to do a PhD at Emory University in Atlanta, where you and I met first. Um, And I did my PhD in neuroscience. So my background is um, originally pretty far from Buddhist studies. Uh, I studied schizophrenia for many years and psychosis, um, but I was always really interested in mind. And then I actually came around to the Buddhist world from a personal interest in meditation And then I slowly kind of started shifting my career towards studying meditation from the neuroscience perspective. So that put me in touch with a lot of um, Buddhist studies folks. And um, that's kind of where our paths crossed down at Emory. And since then, um, I now work for the Mind and Life Institute, which is a big part of um, this book and the event that this um, book covers. So maybe we can talk more about that later. Okay, great.
2: Um, And Jana, how about you? I am from Vermont originally, and I got my um, BA from Smith College, same place as Connie. um, And I actually studied uh, religion and math there. And I just recently was talking to my um, math advisor from my days at Smith and saying how amazing it is to me that when I left Smith, I could not possibly imagine how my professional career could continue to uphold anything that would allow me to do those two things at once. Um, and yet somehow this book and my, my work has brought me back to that intersection. So that's been really exciting for me. Um, I started out in the world of um, communications and then moved into working as an editor Um, and have specialized as an editor in works in Buddhist studies. So I'm a freelancer and I work with different publishers as well as directly with authors and organizations. And I also do work in academic administration. So.
0: Yeah, I, um, I, I love that I went to school with each of you at very different times in very different places and that we're all working in Buddhist studies in different capacities. Um. And we all lived for a period of a a few years at the same time in in Northampton, where, Jana, you still are. Yes. (laughs) Um, So so I'm wondering, um, uh, how did this book come about and how did the two of you end up working on this book together?
1: Maybe I can jump in for the beginning. Um, I can give a little background about... uh, the event that this book covers and a little bit about the Mind and Life Institute. Maybe that would help set the stage. Yeah. <clears throat> um, the, the Mind and Life Institute uh, is a nonprofit that does a lot of work between um, meditation and Buddhist philosophy and science. And so there's been a, a long-standing dialogue now for the last 30 years that Mind and Life has been involved in helping to um, encourage and promote between Buddhism and science, um, particularly as this book covers um, Tibetan Buddhism and Western science, who want to be more specific. But part of that, um, actually the Mind and Life Institute itself emerged from the Dalai Lama and his interest in science, and then a number of scientists who were also interested in mind, and particularly some perspectives that Buddhist philosophy has on mind. And so they started hosting these intimate uh, week-long conversations between the Dalai Lama and some leading um, cognitive scientists and philosophers, and that has continued and the Mind and Life Institute has um, blossomed to also do other things like fund research in this area and hold conferences with academics who are working in this area. but we still continue to hold these dialogues um, with the Dalai Lama as part of our core work so this event was um, a particularly interesting one of those dialogues that took place in 2013 and um, Historically, these dialogues had been held in the living room, basically, of the Dalai Lama. So in a really intimate setting, maybe just a hundred or fewer people uh, there watching in the audience. Um, But in this particular case, uh, the Dalai Lama really wanted to have it in a much larger setting to expose the conversation um, to a larger audience of Tibetan monastic students. So in South India, there are a number of large um, monastic universities. His Holiness had also been working for many years, also through some work with Emory University, as it happens, to build a a program that would help teach um, science to these Tibetan monastic students, and science wasn't a normal part of their curriculum, and the Dalai Lama had begun to see how important and how much overlap there was with Buddhist philosophy. So um, I had actually been a little bit involved in some of that work, but then when I went to work for the Mind and Life Institute, one of the first things that... um, That I did there was to help plan this conference. So it was basically a dialogue uh, between the Dalai Lama and a number of scientists and philosophers, but in this larger setting with many thousands of monastic students there to kind of witness how this conversation can happen. So um, maybe that's a a good background. And uh, Jana, I don't know if you want to jump in and say how you got involved.
2: Sure. Well, I... um... Got involved with the Mind and Life Institute because I was working full time as a, a freelance editor and I met um, in a social context, actually, somebody who um, worked for Mind and Life at that time who had another um, book project based on another Mind and Life dialogue um, that later turned into the book Caring Economics that was edited by um, Mathieu Ricard and Tanya Singer. And the book was at that point was pretty far along in its process, but it needed some cleaning up. And so I met somebody at Mind and Life and um, was brought on to sort of do the wrapping up of that project. And then I think it was right around that time that the, the conference had taken place um, that our book is based on. And there was some energy around wanting to turn it into a book, but recognizing that it would be useful to have some help and to try to figure out how that how that would happen from turning the raw material of the conference into a book. And so um, Wendy and I started talking and four years later here we are. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So were, were these conversations with the Dalai Lama, this, this particular set of conversations, were they carried out with the intention of making it into a book? I mean, did people know that going into these conversations that it would eventually be written down and, and, and published?
1: I think that when we were planning the meeting, um, there was kind of a loose idea that we may turn it into a book, uh, but we weren't clear when the meeting was actually happening um, what the specific outcome would be. But it's, Hmm. I think not, it wouldn't be too surprising for those um, participants, because many of the dialogues historically had been turned into books. So um, I think it was kind of always on the table, but there wasn't a clear plan until a few months afterwards, actually, when we started connecting with Jana and putting together the real plans.
0: Jana, you just you kind of alluded to this, but one of the things that I really love about this book is that it's easy to read, Um, not necessarily in terms of the subject matter, because there's there's a lot of hard stuff that's that's being talked about in the book. But in terms of the prose, um, it really does read like a series of conversations. And when I'm reading it, one of the things that I really like is that it makes me feel like I'm there in the room with these people. Um, but I'm, I'm also aware, um, because I, I saw you guys working on this um, in Northampton, I'm aware of the many hours that the two of you spent working on this project, listening to audio recordings and transcribing them and editing them and making them readable. So I'm wondering... Um, and Jana maybe we can just start with you since since you kind of mentioned this this process um what would you say was the most difficult aspect of taking these recorded conversations and turning them into readable prose
2: well that is that is the question right i mean it's um <laughs> i think it, <laughs> the temptation is to say well oh we had these transcripts and then we sort of added some titles and headings and then that became our book and while at a very basic level that's true, there's barely, you know, a sentence or two in here that we didn't touch in some way. And I think the the real work was to try to figure out how can we turn this into something that preserves that character that you're talking about that I'm so glad that comes across in the book to preserve that conversational tone and that sense of that you're really there live and experiencing conversations in the way that they happen, which is to say that they're not perfect, and sometimes people trail off, and sometimes an idea isn't fully realized, and um, they have a spontaneity to them. And we really wanted to preserve that character while at the same time recognizing that if we just left everything untouched, nobody would want to read it, and nobody would really be able to make sense of it. And so I think the, the real challenge for us was to try to figure out how can we intervene strategically to, to keep that character without, um, without dulling down the, um, that spontaneity and also preserving all of the unique voices. Um, you know, we have almost 20 different contributors who speak at various points in the book. And then also, you know, Wendy and I made our contributions through, um, footnotes and some commentary throughout to clarify. And so trying to balance as well, all of the different voices that are there and make sure that their points come across, but also that they retain their unique um, character and personality. Um, And so that's a very subtle, it's very subtle work, very difficult work. Um, But I'm really glad that you and hopefully others feel like we've achieved it. And I think that's why we took as long as we did to do it um, because um, I think that's really what, what makes the book so special is that it makes it feel like even though there were a lot of people at the event, more people at this event than at a traditional dialogue, you know, there were um, thousands of people there, but now anybody in the world can be a part of that. And and I think that's a really special thing.
0: Yeah, it's, it's really amazing. It's really special. And um, yeah, I just, i I, I just, I can't imagine the, the, the work that went into this because you know, you're right. People, people don't speak in complete sentences, you know? Um, so that's, that's, I mean, it's almost like an act of translation, you know, translating something from spoken, spoken conversation to, to the written word printed on a page. Um, Wendy, I'm wondering if, if you have anything you you maybe want to add to that? Was there anything particular that you found that was particularly difficult in this process?
1: Yeah, I, I agree with everything that Jana described, and she's so skillful with this. She really took the major burden of um, the raw transcripts into the, a digestible form for each chapter, and then she and I started working back and forth. Um, so I think she did the the larger part of, of that raw editing, which she's so skillful at, and I really appreciate it because it is so much work. It's a particular kind of art. Um, but yeah, after she took the first pass, then we started working back and forth quite a bit and like really fine tuning each chapter and eventually got it to the point where we would then go back to the original contributor as well and make sure that they were, um, okay with all of it. So I think I'm trying to think of your question of like the most difficult part. It might've been just deciding what pieces of the conversation, um, you know, were, more, were most important and what pieces maybe should be removed to clarify things or, you know, making those cuts sometimes was difficult in, as Jana was saying, in the, in the overall effort of trying to retain the, the character and voice of the speakers, as well as the most important information that was being portrayed. And, um, you know, at times when, when people trail off or the conversation just veers off in a totally different direction, how to manage that and try to keep things focused for the reader. So, but I think it was, it ended up being a really fun process did, you know, I've, I learned a lot about editing, especially from Janet too. So I'm glad to hear also that that it comes across, you know, that it reads cleanly and as if, as if it's, you're right there in the conversation. That's what we were hoping for.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it it really does. I mean, that's, that's, I think one of the most special things uh, about this book um and, and so there are a lot of people involved in the book. Um, I think something like 18 contributors and then the two of you. And um so I mean, obviously the the main contributions from these other contributors, I mean, you have you have people who are well known in neuroscience, you have people who are well known in Tibetan Buddhism, um, and obviously their main contributions to this volume involved their actual conversations back and forth with the Dalai Lama. Um, and Wendy, you mentioned kind of sending drafts of things to them for to, to give their okay. I mean, what was the involvement of other the the other contributors involved in this book? Was it mostly that they were just kind of giving their okay on the conversations or were, were there any people who were more actively involved?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think Jana
2: can probably I'm happy to that. Yeah. As Wendy mentioned, you know, we we did the, the bulk of the heavy lifting in terms of deciding um, what to keep, what to cut, in some cases to reorganize things, as well as what order the um, presentations would appear in the book. Um, and so we did all of that work. And then we contacted the contributors again and said, okay, here's what we have And we really want your feedback. Um, And in some cases, you know, people wrote back and basically said, this looks fine. And some people would make light edits or um, help fine tune graphics um, or add new citations. You know, that happens sometimes where the... the conference took place in 2013. And so somebody would say at the moment, um, you know, we're working on research right now that we think is going to show X, Y, Z. But then by the time we were actually finalizing the book, that research was farther along and in some cases had been published and we wanted to, um, we wanted to be able to include that as much as we could. And so we also worked with people to, to bring everything up to date to the extent that that was possible. Um, and to just make sure that, that we'd, um, represented their points correctly. And in some cases, of course, I mean, Wendy and I each have, are bringing our own expertise, but the, actually the bulk of the book represents material that she and I are not subject experts in. And so we really wanted to make sure that we were capturing the nuance as best we could. And so that was really important to make sure that um, we weren't kind of getting things wrong. And so um, each of the contributors helped to make sure that just the, um, the real meat of the argument was correct. And then, um, so we invited as, as much feedback as people wanted to provide. And it was great to be able to to bring people back in at the tail end of that process and sort of get their, their insight and their blessing. And then we move forward into, you know, the editorial process with Yale. Um, but at that point, um, people were fine to just let us do that at last fine tuning ourselves.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really, so, I mean, there, there, there are, so many voices, uh, at, at play in, in this work. And that's, that's one of the things that makes it so, uh, interesting to read. So that's great.
2: Uh, one thing we haven't really touched on yet, um, that I think was also a a big piece of the, the preliminary work that Wendy and I did is, um, that the, the order in which the, presentations, um, and material appears in the book is not the order necessarily in which it happened at the conference. Um, and so that was one of our, our, our really big tasks at the beginning was to figure out, you know, we have hundreds of pages of raw material. What do we, what do we keep? What do we fix? What do we, um, reorder internally, you know, within one speaker's section, but also what's the most, um, What's the most uh, sensible or compelling way to organize this material as a printed book? And I think actually that really surprised me. You know, I wasn't, and, and maybe Wendy can speak toward this a little bit, I wasn't involved in planning the conference and the order in which the conference took place. But obviously, there was a lot of effort and thought that was put into that to try to figure out what's going to make this most compelling as a conference. But it's sort of amazing that the at order didn't actually end up translating into the right order for the book. And so, um, which we realized when we we sort of read everything cover to cover of the raw transcripts. And eventually, it became clear that we needed to sort of do some reorganization to make it... um, to make it tell a, a narrative story um, as a whole. And so that was really surprising and, and cool to me actually that, that it, in a different medium um, that we needed a different order to tell the story. So that was a big part of our work as well, just that um, uh, big picture organization in addition to the you know, the minute sentence by sentence, page by page, how is this all flowing, but how does it fit into a whole?
0: Yeah, that's that's a whole other level of um thinking about these conversations and thinking about what's going on. So you guys were really working at, at multiple levels here. Um so that's I, I actually have a question about that, about the organization of the book in general. And maybe maybe Wendy, you could you could speak to this a little bit. Um so the the book consists of fifteen chapters divided into two parts. Um, The first part is titled Matter and Mind, and the second part is titled Transformation. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what's going on in each of those sections and why you guys chose to break up the book in that way?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I agree. Just like Jenna said, this was an interesting part of the process to step back from all of this content. I think we had over 600 pages of raw transcript. And I remember sitting in the coffee shop <laughs> with our stacks of paper and trying to strategize what, what made the most sense. Um, but that was a cool process because it I started to get a different idea about almost this bird's eye view of of the field and the conversation between science and Buddhism and how it's unfolded in these different ways. And so um, I think what became clearer to us in the way we ended up organizing the book is that there are really these two threads, as I see it, in the way that um, the dialogue between science and Buddhism has unfolded. And one of those threads is about kind of big picture nature of reality questions about what is this world that we live in, and what is this stuff that we call mind, and how do we relate to it? Um, And it's almost like a parallel track. So that section of the book covers um, discussions on physics, uh, particularly modern physics or quantum physics. And um, that's kind of the pieces that we think about the nature of reality and like the matter that is around us in this world we find ourselves living in. Um, so Buddhism has ideas about that and science has ideas about that. And so that's a conversation, uh, and then kind of in a similar way, uh, we can think about mind as a particular subset of this world that we live in. Right. So a little bit in a narrowing down to the focus, but the idea of consciousness, and of course, Buddhism has lots to say about that. Um, and modern science is kind of just getting in that space where, um, it has its own views, um, from you know neuroscience or other kinds of theoretical perspectives. So ideas about um, these conversations are they seem to me to kind of run in parallel between the scientific tradition and the Buddhist tradition in that it's not necessarily um, of course, there's a, a dialectic back and forth, but one side isn't necessarily changing because of the other side. It's more of a conversation of understanding the different perspectives and where do they align and where do they diverge and what can we learn from that? Um, But both um, traditions have had their own history of inquiry in the, in these types of questions. So that's kind of um, the nature of mind and the nature of reality. And then the second half of the book uh, felt like it had a really different quality because that's focused more on um, investigations within neuroscience, specifically uh, neuroscience about meditation and how that may be affecting our brains and bodies and health and, experience and um, as well as then the application of meditation as it's happening now in Western society in so many different sectors. And so both of those conversations are really ones that it seemed to me that um, the conversation with Buddhism has transformed, has really changed the way that science is asking, like the kinds of questions that science is asking and then the way that they're even asking the questions. So that felt different because it was really the way that Buddhism is influencing these Western traditions. Um, so there was a, a bit of a different flavor, I think. And that's focused more on transformation. Um, we called it transformations because it's about how can we change our minds, brains, bodies? How can we change society through the practices that have been taken up now in the West coming out of the Buddhist tradition? So that's kind of how we ended up viewing it, which was a really great process to go through because it was um, it was something new to me to be able to step back and look at this the whole field as it's evolving and understand these different angles of the conversation.
2: I just was going to say it also creates a, a sort of a really nice flow in the book from you know, as big picture, as big picture gets, as Wendy said, sort of what is the nature of reality, the the stuff of the world, the stuff of the universe. So it's this huge, huge question. Um, and then sort of then getting a little bit closer into consciousness, and then into mind, and then into practices that we as indiv- individual people can be undertaking. And so we really liked that as a, a flow of the material to sort of start so big and then get down into something that any person who picked up the book or who's undertaking these practices or research or um, just showing an interest in this area can actually be doing something with in their life. Um, so I think that was one of the things that we really liked about this, using that as the structure for the book.
0: Yeah, I mean, these are these are huge big picture questions, you know, like what, what is reality? Why are we here? Um, How do we perceive the things that we perceive? How do we know the things that we know? I mean, this is such a, these are such huge questions. Um, And so that's one of the things that's really exciting about this book is being able to see um, these very different perspectives. I mean, people coming from, from very different, um you know you guys talk about it in the introduction these different modes of inquiry um you know the modes of inquiry from a from a buddhist philosophical perspective and modes of inquiry from a from a western scientific perspective um so with that in mind i'm just kind of curious um as you were listening to these conversations and editing this and and um thinking through how to organize this did you guys find any conversations that seemed like they were particularly difficult either because of the terminology used and difficulties with translation, you know, sometimes translating between Tibetan and English or because of differences in terms of these different modes of inquiry and these vastly different backgrounds between Tibetan philosophy and and Western
1: science? I can say a few things, I think, and Jana, you might have ideas too. Um, I think around terminology um there there are a number of areas where that can kind of come into conflict in in this particular dialogue a big one is around consciousness the word consciousness um Hmm. i think that buddhism and science have slightly can have slightly different views about exactly what that means for example from the science perspective it often means um awareness that is reportable so like it's i think from the science perspective it's a subset of what Buddhism would view as consciousness so um, like in science it would be if you, you're conscious if you're aware and awake and able to report on your experience um, but as far report as I understand, meaning, it, meaning
0: like like you can you can talk about it and describe it is that what you yeah. mean yep
1: yeah okay. you could okay. give some sort of verbal report or um, yeah perspective on, subjective experience of your um, of your consciousness or something. So, um, and I think that's sometimes that leads leads to confusion in conversation, um, with Buddhists or Buddhist philosophers. Cause there, as I understand it, there's a much broader, um, lens on consciousness from mm. that tradition. So Sometimes within the conversation, you kind of have to take a sidebar and make sure that we really be clear about defining your terms, um, you know, from the different sides. And I think that's important for any interdisciplinary dialogue because you're always going to hit up against people with very specific terminology and then there can be misunderstanding and then you can be off on the wrong path from the start. So that's one example that comes to mind that uh, came up, I think a number of times at the meeting while we were there.
0: Jana, was there anything? You Wendy, know? I
2: wonder if you could. Yeah. I wonder if Wendy wants to talk a little bit about um, actually the sort of preparations for these Conferences that happens um, because I think one um, one benefit that we had um, of using the transcripts from the conference is that all of the um, presenters did really careful work to um, from the start make their argument in such a way that it would be understandable, at least in the broad brushstrokes to somebody who, um, was not a specialist in that area. Because if you think about all the different disciplines that, um, the contributors to the book represent, as well as to the audience members who were, who were there present at the event, they're not going to know the specific vocabulary from every single, um, every single discipline and, and every single research area that this represents. And so a lot of careful work went in from the get-go to, to try to frame the arguments in a way that could be um, understandable. And Wendy, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that there are actually some almost kind of rehearsals that happen to, to make sure that that is achieved once the actual event takes place.
1: Yeah, that's a great point, and um, I do think that we benefited from all that preparation when we were working on the book because there was kind of already this uh, point of connection that we'd worked to achieve. So, whenever we do these dialogues uh, with the Dalai Lama, the Mind and Life Institute, once you, we've chosen the you know the speakers and the topic and all these kinds of things, we work really closely for you know many months prior to the event itself with the presenters. Um, both in terms of their, the content <clears throat> that they're going to present and even the slides that they use and the way that they present, because um, this is a very unusual audience for um, you know academic scientists and philosophers. Usually you're presenting to experts within your own field, so you can kind of skip over a lot of background and use really um, heavy jargon and everyone knows what you're talking about. But in this case, um, you're really speaking across uh, quite a divide, um, different traditions. And, you know, um, from the perspective of the sciences, the, um, the Buddhist monastics, uh, of course, the Dalai Lama himself now has some background in science from these many years of his own study and interest. But uh, this particular event, we were really also focusing on these uh, monastic students who really had no, many of whom had no exposure whatsoever to the concepts of Western science, um, which is strange even for us to think about from our culture because it's something that we're exposed to from young childhood, just basics of data and graphs and how you ask questions. And this was all new to those monastic students. So we really had to think carefully about how we were gonna be able to present this data in a way that was uh, accessible to them. And so we go through, we actually meet with the faculty and the presenters um, a couple months before and we do, as Jana said, a kind of rehearsal dry run and people give their presentations to us. And um, those of us who've you know, done this a number of times and are familiar, we work with them and edit their slides and um, oftentimes people are getting too detailed and we need to kind of step back and give a bigger picture type of thing. So, um, yeah, we do a lot of that work and we certainly did for this meeting as well. And I think it, um, I think it paid off in terms of how accessible the material ended up being in the end.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think the, the, the background of, of all of this, all the background work that, that you don't see, or that, that we as readers don't see, you know, picking up this volume and just reading through it, 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 it's, it's noticeable, um, and as you guys mentioned, you know, there, there's a lot that we, and by we, I mean, you know, people who are from North America, who were educated in, in North American school systems, there's a lot that we take for granted, um, that people who are, you know, monks educated in a Tibetan monastic setting, you know, they're, they, they don't get, they get a very different kind of education, um. You know, and there's there are a lot of things that we take for granted that we don't even think about that they just don't because it's not it's not necessarily evident. You know, it's not like empirically evident from an ordinary person's perspective. And so there's a lot that you kind of have to explain. Um, But I think as a result of all of that background work, the the volume that you guys wound up with is, is very clear. Um, and a lot of the, the contributors, I mean, they've been involved in an ongoing conversation. I mean, Wendy, you mentioned that these conversations with the Dalai Lama have been going on for years, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. And um, a number of these uh, presenters for this particular meeting have been involved for many decades. So people like uh, Richie Davidson uh, Matthew Ricard, um, Tanya Singer has been involved for quite some time. And so a number of people were very familiar with the kind of um, way that these things unfold, which is great. You know, that really helped, I think, the success of the meeting and hopefully the clarity of the book. And then we did bring in also some new people, though, which is something we always try to do in these dialogues is to bring in leaders in their fields, uh, whatever discipline they might be. Within academic study, and then um, expose them to this conversation. So, one of those who was uh, new to this one was Christoph Koch, who is a a leading consciousness researcher, and um, he, you know, was very like reductionist materialist scientist. And I think he was really changed. Um, he even wrote a little piece uh, of his own after this this meeting because uh, his exposure and just having these conversations, particularly he and Matthew Ricard uh, got to, got into lots of interesting debates about consciousness. And, um, I think it really, you know, it, it changed his perspective. And, um, so that's, that's exactly the kind of thing we hope that happens from these events is people get a different, different view, expand a little bit.
0: That's great. Um, Jana, do you have, do you have anything to, to add to that before we move on?
1: I guess the one other
2: thing I would say from, I guess, uh, you know, the editorial perspective, um, you know, as Wendy said, all of that, that work that went into it made our jobs easier, which is not to say easy, but easier. But I think, you know, um, as we mentioned before, because there's material in the book that that both Wendy and I know a lot about, and there's not a hundred percent overlap there. And that was part of why we made such good partners is I think we really brought complementary skills to the book Um, and and complementary areas of expertise. But I think what we also tried to do in the end was to sort of use ourselves as a test case for a reader um, and to try to think, you know, no matter what, everybody who's going to come to this book is going to be an educated non-specialist because there's no one in the world who's, you know, an expert in every single one of these areas. And so at the end of the day, we sort of tried to be... um, critical readers of our own material to say, okay, when we go through all this work, we make all this effort, can we actually understand this? You know, I can say personally, the the material that the book begins with the material on physics is fascinating and very difficult. Mm -hmm. And we were a little (laughs) nervous about leading, um, you know, (laughs) opening the book that way. Um, because I think there, there there's some material later on in the book, you know, particularly around some of the, um, Uh, secular practices, uh, uses of meditation practices that are, um, you know, now commonly talked about in in really popular media, like, you know, how mindfulness can make you a more productive worker. So there's some ideas there that are a lot more familiar to sort of the common reader. And we sort of started with our hardest material. And so we were really, we worked really, really hard to To, at the end of the day, evaluate, okay, we know this is a challenge, and that's going to be the case no matter what, because it just inherently, which is not, of course, to say that the other stuff isn't challenging material as well, but it's not as, doesn't as readily reveal itself as, oh, yeah, sure, I can understand quantum physics, no problem. Um, (laughs) But so I, I think we really read it to see, okay, do I do i understand this um i'm not at all suggesting that i understand quantum physics by the way but i am <laughs> suggesting that that you know when we when we um decided that that material was was done and and ready to be included in the book we felt like you know somebody we think that anybody with interest and intention is going to be able to pick this up and make sense of this and still want to keep going um and and so we we making the making the material accessible to me was sort of one of basically my top priority in the book um making it accessible and of course making it interesting but it doesn't matter how interesting it is if people can't make sense of it if they don't understand the terminology terminology that's being used and if they don't understand the connections um, between, you know, as we've been talking about, it's a huge, the amount of material the book covers is massive. And so we needed to also help people to sort of draw the links between, um, between these various areas so that at the end of the day, they felt like, oh, okay, I see, I see how all of this um, fits. And I see why this conversation is happening to begin with and why anybody thought to put all of these people together in a room and to have a conference. And then why Wendy and Jana and Yale decided to turn this into a book. <laughs> um, so, because it's not, it, it you know, it's not immediately obvious. And so that was a, a real, a real focus for us to, to help readers, you know, follow along. So with us. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm glad that I think we, I think we, I think our work paid off.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'll just add one more uh, or maybe two small points to tack on to that. So, yeah, as Jenna was saying, the the breadth of material in this book is really wide ranging. And um, so that in part made it a challenge, you know, to fit together into cohesive volume. And I'm glad it came together the way it did. But in a way, that's also um, so that came out of. The way, of course, we planned the meeting to have that wide of a scope, which is, was also unusual. Um, in this case, uh, prior um, dialogues with the Dalai Lama would normally be focused on a specific topic. For example, say physics, or just let's look at consciousness, or you know um, neuroscience, or something like that. So, um, in this in this meeting, and we were planning the conference, we were intentionally really widening the lens. Um, kind of give a, a broad sense of the whole um history of the dialogue between buddhism and science so that's why we included so many different areas and that was in a way also to um give an overview for this new audience of tibetan monastics so they could get a flavor of all the different areas that this conversation has been evolving in so that's makes the book really rich but also in a way again a challenge to to fit together and i think the, the structure that we ended up with really does work. But also I should point out that um, another nice thing I think that came out um, is that each chapter can also stand alone. So, mm-hmm. you know, if it doesn't actually have to be read in a sequence, we think it fits well that way. But you can kind of pick and choose if there's topics um, that the reader is particularly interested in. You can jump around and you're not going to lose, you know, the complete meaning of what's going on. So since they came, since each chapter really did come from a presentation and a a conversation kind of contained within itself, that's a nice aspect, too, because they can also stand alone.
0: Yeah, that's um, one of the things that—that's another thing that I think is really nice about this book is you can kind of—it it does tell a cohesive narrative if you read it all the way through, but you can also pick and choose, and and you know if you if you want to learn about physics, you can you know um, pick it up and just and just read those chapters, and you can kind of get get a sense of things, and that's a really nice aspect of the book. So that's something I appreciated.
1: Yeah, or um, if you want to speak with physics. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I mean but this to. is this is something that's that's you know like that's that's really hard with any kind of interdisciplinary work in general is you know um whenever you're getting people from very different disciplines together um nobody's going to be a, nobody in the room is going to be a specialist in every single topic that you're talking about so you know all of this kind of preparation and and understanding that you have to be able to explain these complex ideas without a lot of jargon and in a way that other people can easily understand, um, and still be able to get your complex, concrete sort of thesis across in your your presentation. Um, that that takes a lot of skill, and I think that's something that the the contributors to this book, um, you know, the the people who were presenting in these conversations, that's something that that they were very good at doing, but it's something that the two of you in editing these conversations um, did really skillfully. So I'm, I'm appreciative of that um, in reading the book. And I, and I know that that wasn't necessarily always easy to do.
1: Well, thanks. I'm really glad to hear that, (laughs) that it came across that way.
0: (laughs) Um, So I'm, I'm curious, um, you know, I, I had, I had two questions that I wanted to save for, you know, kind of towards the end of the interview, but Wendy, you, you said, uh, you know, the, the point of these conversations is not necessarily to change neuroscience or Buddhism. And my questions were, you know, how has neuroscience changed as a result of these (laughs) conversations and how has Buddhism changed as a result of these conversations? So I'm going to revise those questions. Um, and I'm just curious, um, you know, from, from both of your perspectives, what do you think that neuroscientists or neuroscience as a field um, has, has learned as a result of conversations like these?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think there's a couple of areas where neuroscience has advanced um, because of these conversations and because of now a, a line of inquiry into contemplative practice, like meditation, for example. So that's another thing that's of course, come out of, um, of these conversations and this, this interchange. Um, one I think is the way, uh, the emphasis or kind of a renewed value on, um, subjective experience and first person inquiry, which, um, is obviously really strong in the Buddhist contemplative traditions, uh, a way of investigating one's own experience internally. And science, you know, traditionally would just bring this third person or objective view from the outside and kind of like, let's look at someone's brain to try to understand what's going on. But of course, you also really, when you're studying mind or, or someone's experience, you need you need some uh, subjective aspects to bring that in. And to do that really rigorously is where contemplative practices are so beautiful as a um, That can dovetail with science because they do have a kind of rigor and reliability and consistency and building of skill sets. So studying that and bringing in that voice of the um, subjective side into scientific inquiry is something that I think this conversation has really um, enriched cognitive science and neuroscience, and it's still unfolding. You know, the best ways to do that—it's not always immediately clear how um, how that can be done—but I think things are things are moving forward in terms of methodologies where participants can provide input on their own experience and scientists can rely more on that than they used to. I think for a long time in psychology, there was a um, hesitance um, to rely on anyone's uh, reports of their own experience, because of course we do know that they are not always reliable, but that's part of why working with people who are trained in meditation, because you can gain a more and more, rigorous and nuanced understanding of your own experience that can really help in the study of the mind and the brain. I think um, the other thing that's going on in neuroscience, which is really exciting, and I think that the study of these practices has really, it's, it's not, um, this isn't happening only because of that, but this is really advancing it in large part is this whole idea of neuroplasticity and the ability of the brain to change through practice and experience. And um, in the last 15, 20 years, I think there's been a total revolution in um, psychology and neuroscience about the capacity of the human mind and the human brain to change itself and just how possible that is over the lifespan. For many, many decades, it was thought that after adolescence or in, in your early 20s, you know, you were wired up the way you were going to be and your personality was pretty fixed. And you know, you are who you are. And that's kind of it. And no, no need to bother trying to change. And um, now we know that that concept has really completely been thrown out the window now. And a lot of evidence just keeps coming out from these um, brain studies of particularly of meditation practice and mental training, like contemplative practices, of just how quickly um, the brain can be rewired and experience can be changed uh, accordingly, and I mean, within a you know a one day intervention shows consistent uh, effects on these kinds of things. So, and this is you know in people well into adulthood. So I think that's a really exciting um, development that's happening in neuroscience, and and the exchange with Buddhism and Buddhist practices has had a large um, part to do with that.
0: Yeah. Uh Jana, is there is there anything you uh have have noticed as a result of these conversations or anything you want to add to this?
1: I think
2: that really the question that that um we're talking about here and and we actually included it in some of the I think it might even be in the jacket copy of the book of sort of what can science do for a monk and what can a monk do for science? I think it's actually a really fascinating and really challenging question, I think particularly coming from the western world we um I feel like my idea for so long was, well, either you believe in religion or you believe in science and sort of narrow the two shall meet. And we have almost no models for, for any kind of, uh, Personal practice or belief system that could successfully integrate those two things, and and while I should say that, um, and as we talk about, and and as His Holiness talks a lot about that, that the material in the book that we're talking about here is is Buddhist science and Buddhist philosophy, and that there's a whole lot to Buddhist religion that's really not addressed in this book unintentionally. So, um, the the model to say, well, actually. These two systems don't have to agree entirely for us to be informed by them, for us to be excited by them, and for us to find – it's not to say, well – I'm a monk, and I believe completely in in my tradition. And then I got exposed to science, and now I decided that actually all this other stuff I've learned isn't true. And so now I'm going to go, you know, I don't know, <laughs> right. live a secular life or become a scientist or something. That's not it at all. It's actually, um, I think, I think there's a real model in in the the lack of fear that's expressed in this to say, you know, this is a I, I don't want to it's okay if sometimes we don't agree. It's okay if I might be proved wrong um, or if I might prove you wrong. But this is an ongoing conversation that can be um, playful and informative and creative and that doesn't necessarily have to result in a change in practice or a a change in um, discipline, but in a change in orientation toward one's own practice. So, you know, His Holiness has said that, that... his exposure to um, materials around research showing how um, meditative practice affects the brain has really increased his conviction to practice. Um, and one of the contributors in the book says that she really thinks of science as an ethical practice. And so I really like that idea that the, the takeaway of these, one of the takeaways of these conversations is not to turn Buddhists into scientists and scientists into Buddhists, but that it actually makes more engaged scientists and more engaged Buddhists in whatever way that means. Um, I actually think that's really beautiful.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's really amazing. And, I mean, and, and we see with, um, and you guys mentioned this in the book, but with um, the Dalai Lama's encouragement of introducing the study of Western science into some, um, Tibetan Buddhist monasteries. Um, and you know, the, the intention, like you said, Jana is not to turn these monks into scientists, but to give them other tools to think about the world. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they have to abandon their, their Buddhist beliefs the same way that Buddhism doesn't necessarily have to make scientists abandon their scientific processes. Um, so that's um, I, th- I think these these conversations are really rich and really productive for that reason. I want to thank you guys for for taking the time to talk with me today. Um, you know we're we're coming up on an hour here, so I don't want to take up too much of your time. But I have one last question for each of you before we wrap up. And uh, Jana, maybe we can start with you. What's next for you, or or what are you working on now? What are you involved in right now in terms of you know the work that you're doing? <laughs>
2: That's a great question. i'm um I don't have another um, specific book project lined up, although I'm really excited to um, find one in the future. Um, right now, I think I'm really just enjoying basking in the fact that this book is done and that it's out there in the world and um, finding some readers and finding some success. It was such a long, such a long uh, journey, such an amazing learning experience and um, really, for me, brought together so many different parts of my life into one sort of um just really amazing project. So I I'm I I have thought a lot about and been asked a lot kind of what's next. And I think right now I'm really focused on just enjoying this part of the process. Um <laughs> after so many stages of feeling like, wow, is this thing ever actually gonna be done? And it is, and it's so wonderful and I'm so <laughs> proud of that. And and so part of what I'm doing now is just is just really uh appreciating that. Um and um in a in a a sort of in a different vein, I'm focusing now, I'm par- participating in a, a Women's Leadership Institute locally. Um, and I think, I think, trying to become um, as engaged as I can in, um, in my professional life, I'm also doing some other, um, as I mentioned earlier, some Academic administration and uh much in the model of I think the people represented in this book um trying to not not look at these things as somehow uh separate but complementary and if I can be engaged in my professional practice across my life, then hallelujah, so that's what I'm doing
0: <laughs> well, and that's great And it's, uh i think I think the uh the, the yes, you should enjoy uh basking in the glow of this book because I know that it was a long time in the making for both of you. And I also just, um, cause you mentioned this women's leadership uh, program that you're involved in. I, I just, I'm so thrilled that two um, talented and intelligent women were involved in the creation of this book um, when it deals with neuroscience and Buddhist philosophy, which are two fields that um, historically have been heavily, very heavily dominated by men. Um, And just given the fact that there were so many monks in the room present when these conversations were happening, um, uh, there were definitely a lot of uh, women's voices that maybe weren't present in the conversation. So I'm I'm just glad that that both of you were involved in in working on this. Um, So, Wendy, what about you? What's what's next for you? What are you working on now?
1: Um, yeah I continue to work uh, with the Mind and Life Institute I serve as a science director there so uh, since the time of this um, conference my work has shifted uh, from planning and um, helping with the dialogues really more now I'm focusing on the grant funding so the, the research funding that we provide to um, scientists and scholars to do this kind of, um, work in contemplative science and push the field forward, which is really exciting for me. And uh, the other thing that's on the horizon for me is I'm going to start teaching at University of Virginia uh, in the spring semester starting in January, and I'll be um, doing a course on kind of an intro to contemplative science. So this book has served as a great uh, resource and learning experience and um, scaffolding for me as I'm thinking about ways to convey and talk about this field, um, kind of writ large and all that goes into it and modes of inquiry and all that kind of stuff. So I'm excited to bring that now to, um, students at UVA this spring. So yeah, good things ahead.
0: That's great. That sounds really exciting. Are you going to be using this book as, as a kind of textbook for that course?
1: Um, we're not, I'm not planning to work through it systematically as a textbook, although that could be a fun course to plan, but, um, I probably will use pieces of it. Um, maybe the introduction and a couple of excerpts from chapters to give examples of, of some of these areas of research. So that's another great, (laughs) nice bonus from having worked on the book.
0: Oh, that's great. Well, that's great. Um, well, Jana, Wendy, thank you so much for, for taking the time to talk with me today. And, um, Good luck with, with things in the future.
1: Thanks so much. Thank you so been much. it really fun. Thanks for having us. All right.
0: That was Wendy Hassenkamp and Jana White, co-editors of The Monastery and the Microscope, Conversations with the Dalai Lama on Mind, Mindfulness, and the Nature of Reality, published by Yale University Press in 2017. You can find out about more new books in Buddhist studies and other academic fields by visiting newbooksnetwork.com or by searching for New Books Network wherever you get your podcasts.